This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Rebecca Higgy, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Rebecca is in Perth at this very moment. She's coming to us via Western Australia. Her whole life has been spent in the company of books with careers in libraries and universities. Formerly an academic at Curtin University and Brunel University, London, she has published research on satire and politics, worked in the stacks of the State Library of Western Australia and fostered childhood literacy as a library officer at Guildford Primary. Uh, this is her debut novel that we're talking about today, the History of Mischief, and it won the 2019 Fogarty Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, now, do you know, when I first, um, when I was reading my research notes on you, I thought, oh, wow, she's a lot older, obviously, than I thought <laughs> just because I was looking at your career path, but you're actually not. <laughs> That's a lot of work to have achieved. So tell me, how did your career start? Tell me what at what point you you wanted to be a writer? I think I wanted to be a writer since I was a little kid. I was, I was, I was that kid that would, um, everything I got, I would turn into a story. Um, so there's a, the first thing I ever wrote in my memory, at least I was about five and my mum gave me these fairy stickers and I put put them on a piece of paper and I, I folded it into a book and I wrote a story and I remember giving it to my mum and she just thought it was wonderful, this beautiful story about fairies. I found it later in my 20s and I misspelt the word fairy through the whole book, <laughs> through the entire book. I didn't spell it correct once. But her enthusiasm and how she was just like, oh, this is such a wonderful story. It really made me feel so good and made me want to tell more stories. And that's very much how I think as well. Um, I I can't remember a time when I didn't tell myself stories throughout my life. Even now as an adult, I still, as I'm going about my day, I'm, I've got a story just going in my head. So yeah. I think it's definitely been since I was a kid and it just kind of lingered with me, almost torturing me, just saying you have to write, you have to write, you have to write. Just get and were you a great reader? Oh, or yeah. are you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't remember never being able to read Um I, I just read everything and my mum would let me read anything as well. So um, I listened to um, a po- an interview you did with an actress who um, was in the police show D.L. and Pasco. Yes. And I was like, oh, I loved that show when I was a kid. And I would, when I was about 10, I would read the novels, the novelizations of D.L. and Pasco, this gritty police drama. <laughs> I was a huge reader. Reading was a huge part of my life and, and it still is. Um, yeah though I don't have as much time to read as I would like. So tell me your career path. So I, well, first of all, I I started in, it's, it's kind of hard to say because I, I, my first 
like proper good job was at the State Library of WA. And I was, it was just a low, low paid um, job, low level, just working in the stacks as a library officer. So I was basically retrieving books for people. So a researcher would come in, request a book. It would often be a really rare book, um, a book that was locked away in like a beautiful room that's like a fridge because it's um, preserving the books. And, yeah, so it's my job to go and get those books for the researcher and bring it up to the research room, often leave white gloves there with them. And I was doing that in my late teens and into my early 20s. Um, Around that time, I also um, decided I'd I'd finished my honours degree and I wanted to do a PhD. Um, And my PhD, it's, it's not a creative writing PhD, it's a traditional kind of research PhD into satire. And so I kind of had these divergent paths where I was, on one hand, I was in libraries and books and loving stories. And then I was doing, you know, hard kind of research and then teaching as well. I was teaching at Curtin. I got a um, fellowship from the government to go over to the UK to do research, to do more research there after my PhD. Um, But the whole time I had this book over me and the history of mischief kind of just lingered, lingered, lingered. It was with me for 12 years and it followed me everywhere. And eventually I decided to kind of give up academia, to just throw it all away and say, I can't do, I can't be a writer and I can't be an academic at the same time. I, I don't have the time to do that. So I left academia and I went back into libraries by, I actually found a job at Guildford Library, uh, Guildford Primary Library, which was already for years a setting in my book. So the big... Wow, what a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. I, remember, I remember seeing the job advertised and I thought, oh my God, can I, I would love to do that. This is where my book is set. I, I, and so I put the job application in and I got it. And it was one of the best jobs. I'm still, technically that's still my job. I'm on maternity leave at the moment. But um, it was a brilliant job because not only did it let me work in the environment where my book's set, but it also gave me time to write, which I didn't have when I was in, in academia, when I was teaching and marking and answering a thousand emails. So um I think we need to talk a little bit about libraries because my career started in the library too. I started at the local library called Marrickville Library and, uh, you know, I'm very, very familiar with stacks. But also mm-hmm. I feel that libraries in themselves uh, were a really great place for me to start my career and obviously for you because um, you're doing something incredibly interesting. I was a library officer as well. And you're servicing a community. So what I loved about it was I was often on the front desk. And what I loved was Mm. really the people that came in and out. I mean, I really enjoyed that and and always trying to second guess what people might be reading. That was one of my things that I really enjoyed doing, (laughs) thinking, what books are they going to borrow today? But I, I feel that they, libraries in particular, and you'll see this having worked in one, have really been transformative over the years. Like they really approached digital with certainly an open mind don't you think and and have moved they're just so progressive aren't they that's the word I'm. absolutely this this idea that libraries are kind of a relic of the past anyone who thinks that it does not go to a library yeah (laughs) I've been so impressed with how quickly they moved when when COVID hit yes instantly all the rhyme times the story times that we couldn't go to anymore they were instantly online. Mm. Um, the State Library of WA here, they did these, these mystery packs. So you could put in an application to get a box or a bag of mystery books. You could say what they were. And I think something like 500 or 600 of them went out. That they just, I've been so impressed with how libraries have responded. What a great also, idea. Li- 
Yeah, isn't it a brilliant idea? Yeah. And I, I actually got one of these. I put in an application very quickly and I got one. I requested junior books, so I got a beautiful book, a collection of board books and picture books for my son, um, some books that I would never have picked up otherwise. Um, and this is actually something I did when I was a library officer at Guildford Primary. I did uh, mystery books and I wanted to make sure every kid had one. So with my volunteers, we wrapped 350 books yeah, in wow. brown paper and drew pictures and gave clues on them. And that was a good way for me to kind of give the kids a surprise, but also introduce them to a new book that they maybe wouldn't have picked up otherwise. So I think libraries, they really, they really do adapt and you know, you can access streaming services, you can access digital books, you can obviously, for me at the moment as a young mum, I go every week for rhyme time and story time and it's just, yeah, it's such a, they're so good at innovating. I'm always so impressed with libraries. Yeah. And they're great community hubs. I'm often just, you know, my heart melts, you know, sometimes when I see, you know, for instance, HSC students sitting there studying, but at the t- mm-hmm. same time, there's an, a, you know, an older guy or an older woman there sitting there reading the paper and, you know, just enjoying some time out. And I, I, I do, I've, I've got a lot of time and respect for libraries and I love them as institutions. I think they're so valuable. And also I think these jobs that we do at those ages are formative as well, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I remember walking around the stacks of the State Library and the first thing that struck me when I first was being introduced, I was being shown the stacks, was the smell of it. So it smelt like, like it smelt like off honey. Yeah. And that was the leather, kind of the decaying leather in there. And I remember just, it was so magical. Uh, it was, you know, it's a very technical job, really. You're looking for the call number, you're looking for a particular book, you're looking in a particular section. But the magic of what you're pulling off the shelf is so, uh, like you say, it's very formative. It couldn't, I couldn't help but tell stories as I was doing my job. Um, yeah. I think I told a thousand stories in my head. And I do actually have scenes in my book in the State Library of WA with the characters walking around the stacks. I'm sure the stacks are quite different to when I was in my, you know, late teens and early 20s. But, yeah, very much a very formative experience. Yeah. So you'd been working and, you know, as I said, quite an impressive career there was is forming. And when did you decide to take to writing? When was it that you thought, okay, I'm going to give this a go? Well, I, like I mentioned, I wrote a lot as a kid. When I was in my, between the ages of nine and 15, I probably wrote about seven books. Now, they weren't good. <laughs> I, will, I will say that. But, um, you know, Rebecca, I think that's okay <laughs> because that's called practice. Well, exactly. And I've, I've spoken to so many writers now who their first book has never seen the light of day, you know, yeah. it's kind of a, a practice. And I did a lot of practicing in my teens. And then I hit about 16 and I kind of, I don't know if what it was, but I decided I was not a good writer. And from that point on, I couldn't write anymore. I, I and you a, made that decision yourself. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, I think... Yeah, I very much came to that conclusion myself. I think I was just not a very happy teenager, so everything was bad in my life, and so I attached that to my writing. And I then went to university and did some creative writing in my um, bachelor, and my marks weren't, you know, they weren't bad, but they weren't great. And so that kind of confirmed to me, yes, I'm a bad writer. So, But I still couldn't stop writing. So throughout my whole career, my whole life, I've been writing, but it wasn't until... I kind of decided that this book just had to finish. It, it, it lingered for so long. It didn't matter if it, it never got published. It didn't matter if no one read it. I just had to finish it. So that's kind of how I came to write this book. It's something that lingered for a very, very long time. 
And then I just thought, okay, I just have to, I just have to write it. Even if it means I, I quit my job, I go and do something else. I just have to finish it. That, that, that's it. And is that what you did? That's what I did. I, um, I was working at Curtin. I was a sessional academic and I was teaching a lot. I was teaching a lot online and at the online structure through Open University Australia has basically four study periods that are back to back. So there's no break. And I found this quite relentless. I had hundreds of students. I, I had no time to even, um, I was working day, night, weekends, everything. And I just thought, I can't do this anymore. And I'm probably not going to get a nice, I'm probably not going to get a permanent job. And even if I did, it's still going to be such a big workload. I have to make a decision here. Is this what I want to do with my life? And I decided, no, I don't want to do this. It's it's too much. I love my students. I love my research, but it's too much and this is not how I want to live my life. I'd rather have a really nice, relaxed job that I can still be passionate about while also doing, engaging in what I felt was very much a hobby, but one that I was very passionate about. So that's what I did. Yeah, I did leave um, yeah. academia. <laughs> so in my research note, it says that it took you 12 years to write, but it's not 12 years full time, is it? No, 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 no. no. So um, I, I started to develop the idea when I was, doing my bachelor and I started writing and then I would stop and then I'd go back to it and stop. So during that time is when I did all my um, my PhD, I was working, I went to work overseas. Can I just um, interrupt there? Because I think too that adds to the life experience of storytelling, don't you think? Mm. Oh, absolutely. And a friend said to me recently, if you'd finished the book when you'd started it, it would yeah. be a completely different book because I'm a completely different person. And even if I look at some of the development of the story, I can feel the story is ageing with me almost because I do kind of develop a bit more of a critical mindset towards certain things, especially about storytelling in libraries. I started to think about not only the very romantic side and the good side of libraries, but sometimes the violence in libraries or the violence in storytelling and how sometimes we can take stories from others. So I think it's definitely... Talk um, to me more about that. What well, you mean? Well, I, so I think a lot of this comes from my husband, who's a, um, his name's Yirgo, he's an Ethiopian scholar. And he, at the, when I was writing some of this, was talking to me a lot about how the West often put certain narratives upon a place like Ethiopia. And I was really interested in some of the stories and exploring the violence behind that. So in one of the histories, we see... Um, an Ethiopian envoy is sent to London to request the remains of a stolen prince called Alamahu. And at the same time, they request, can you please return the books that you stole from us at the Battle of Magdala? And the response they get is no, because we can preserve them for you. We will care for them for you. Um, we are better placed to look after your stories and your history than you are. And that's, well, that's, they don't say that directly, but that's the implication. So that's one thing I also wanted to explore, that stories can be so redemptive and powerful and create empathy, but sometimes they can also obscure or they can take away from something. So I was, I was interested in exploring my legacy as, and my kind of ancestry as a, you know, a white woman who perhaps has a, you know, violence in the way that my privilege operates in the world. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit while also writing about the places and the things that I love. Like, I, I love Ethiopia. Um, it's my part, half of my family is there now. You know, my son is Ethiopian. So 
yeah, I wanted to explore that, the, the, the power of stories, the beauty of stories, but also how sometimes they can be, if, if we're not critical about it, they can be damaging if we're not careful. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, and also they can be mis- misconstrued, can't they? You know, I mean, yeah, storytelling absolutely. can often be a, a fake story, if you like. And and that's what, you know, I, I often think about that, like in terms of, you know, people's love of reading and books. And, you know, the work that we do at Better Reading, we only work with publishers because for me, that's the first call, mm. if you like, you know, and that's the difference, I think, between working with self-published books and published books. I need there to be a culling process for that to then come to us, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think that as as writers, it's, it's wonderful to have that as well when we have input on someone saying, mm, this isn't correct, or maybe you need to rethink that, that. Or, or we have good friends. So I have um, a wonderful group of friends who are also writers, and they would give me little bits of tips on some of the things in my book and say, hmm, you might want to change that. And a good example is I mentioned very briefly that one of the, I call them mischiefs, was a, it's just a ref, one reference to um, a hunchbacked mischief in Paris. So I'm talking about the hunchback of Notre Dame. And initially I said this person had the book, The History of Mischief, on their back and had hidden it so it looked like a hunchback. But then I was a friend was like, you're kind of erasing, like, um, you know, disability there that maybe what? why are you doing this? And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I should take that out and word it in a different way to be a bit yeah. more sensitive. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So back to to writing. So when you decided to sit down and give it your all, tell me what that was like. Was it firstly what you expected the writing process to be like? Because there's a lot of, I guess, romance around the idea of writing, isn't there? That's not always the case. It's like, the you know, the the idea of working in a bookshop is like you're reading all day. The idea of working in the florist is like, oh, you're around beautiful flowers. But the idea of writing and being a writer isn't exactly what it's cut out to be right no and if anyone talks to me about actually writing I would smash that romantic idea in a second because I find writing tremendously difficult I have a lot of ideas in my head but actually getting it out I do find very very hard one of the ways I try and help myself with that is first of all I get organized so when I really got into writing this book properly I had a lot of deadlines that all my friends knew about so they kept me accountable Um, I would report my daily word count to my husband and he would 
act surprised when it was a good amount, you know, kind of spurring me on. But also I decided to give myself permission to be a very bad writer, to just write rubbish. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the idea that writers are somehow geniuses that are caught by the muse and are just pouring out their words. Often I like to think about writing as almost, and it's going to sound awful, but vomiting. You're kind of like vomiting out clay and then you have to shape it later. But first of all, you have to get it out. Mm. And so there were some days I would only write 50 words and other days when I would write 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 even when I got on a bit of a roll. But most of the time it was, even when I decided to really commit to it, it still took me three or four years to really get this out because I, I do find it so tremendously difficult to to write. It's definitely not a, you know, you're not sitting in a cafe with a latte and just do, 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 yeah you know? <laughs> exactly and it's that's not how it works at least not for me <laughs> no and I think it doesn't work for a lot of people and a lot of people have that view but I spoke to Tim Winton a few years ago now and and you know he's an author that I greatly admire and and, and mm. love his books and to me Tim Winton novel often is poetic you know I love um, his style of writing mm. um, but it wasn't until I spoke to him and recorded a podcast with him that he talked about that very process that he Mm. writes and rewrites and, you know, so he has tweaked his own books to an inch of their life before they even get Uh to the editor. And that whole view that we have of you right, that it just comes out. It's, that's very rare. Oh, I don't believe it happens, honestly. Yeah. Um, The first draft of this novel, which is quite a sizable book, it's, it's about a hundred and so thousand words. When I first, the first draft was 180,000. Yeah, wow. That's so like basically two of my PhDs in, in this one book and it was a monster. I would never show it to anyone. It's, it's awful, but it needed to happen first and then I needed to go back. And I actually think I prefer editing than writing. I really enjoy the challenge of, okay, I've got this rubbish scene. I know that there's something in here that I, I care about and that I want to say, it's just I've got to kind of sh- carve out the nonsense to get to the good stuff. Yeah. That's how I think about writing. Um, and at the moment I'm, you know, trying to work on a second book and I just have to keep telling myself that this is going to be rubbish and it's okay to be rubbish because yeah. I will come back later and I will fix it, hopefully. <laughs> and so at what point did you decide it was good enough and how did you find your publisher? And we can mention the lovely people at Fremantle because we love them. They And they, they, I have to say, they've been absolutely wonderful. The way I came to do that was, so I finished the book itself, like after a few edits, a month before my son was born. And then I gave it to friends and said, you know, I'm about to have a baby, read it, take your time. And then I kept seeing that the Fogarty Literary Award was being advertised and it was for under 35s. Um, I was like, oh, this might be a good opportunity or I should at least try. My, my attitude with a lot of things is probably not going to work, but I might as well try. And so I was really struggling in the early days of motherhood. Breastfeeding was not going well. I was very sick after the birth myself. And so I was pumping, breast. I was doing um, breast pumping like eight times a day. I was exhausted, but still I, I just had to try. So I sat and I edited it. Um, I kept editing it for about a month before the submission was due, going back, cutting words, cutting words, and then just sent it in and got lucky, you know, um, they, so they picked the book. 
I'd have to say that it's not all luck. <laughs> I think there's a bit of skill in there, don't you think? I'd hope so. Um, but, yeah, so that was how, that was the process. of. I, I think I got tremendously lucky. While the book took a very long time to write, actually getting it to publication was very quick. I got a, I, I finished the book a month before my son was born. I submitted it for the Fogarty when he was about four months old and then I won it when he was five months old. Yeah, wow. Um, and then I got my contract and I started working with the people at Fremantle Press. And it, it has been wonderful. Even now, if you were to ask to see my, my winning novel, I'd be embarrassed to show you because it has changed so much even then due to the help that I got from the publisher, um, Kate, here. She's been amazing. She's really helped me rethink how I do certain things, the structural edits, so many histories were moved around and things were changed and it is remarkable even winning a prize that book is not going to be on the shelves I can guarantee you it's going to go through a huge amount of edits before it even gets to the bookstore. Did you enjoy that process tell me about the editorial process because it is something that people quite often fear but you know I'm not a writer but I've often thought that that is the greatest privilege that a writer could have. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Um, I remember coming in to have a meeting with Kate and she had the huge pile of the book. She had the huge book. She had notes on it. And she looked a little bit nervous as she was about to ask me certain things. And then she'd propose certain things and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. And yeah. there was one thing where there was a history. So there are histories throughout the book and there was one history that was the, at the end. And she's like, this doesn't really work with the timing. Why don't we just cut half of this history? move it here and then and I'm just like this is brilliant and then I could really I, I really enjoyed the process of then since I moved to history my protagonist she responds to each history that she reads so then I had to rewrite every chapter after that so that she would respond to the actual history that she'd read and that changed everything going forward but I really think it changed it for the better and everything that was cut needed to be cut. So that's what I loved about working with Kate and even getting feedback from my friends. I felt like every time I got something, the book got better. Yeah. And I would say to writers out there, um, embrace it. You know, it'll. You can always disregard things. I certainly said, mm, no, I don't agree with this. But take everything in a good spirit and try to see how it will um, make your work better. Because the motive is, you know, I, and I say this to writers often, the motive is that everybody wants a good story at the end. Absolutely. Yeah. And your editor will be your biggest champion. Like they get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of submissions, but they picked yours. Yeah. So I always um, would come to these meetings, even when I was nervous about certain things that maybe we disagreed on or things I wasn't sure I could do, I always came to that knowing for whatever reason they picked this book, so they must like some of it, yeah. <laughs> presumably. <laughs> so, um, all they want is they, they only want the best thing out of this book and so do I. So it's very much I see it as being a collegial relationship where you work yeah. together to make the story the best it can possibly be. It's a collaboration, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so would you call yourself a writer now? I guess I would. Yeah. Um, at the moment, I'm not doing a lot of writing because I'm very busy with my son. I'm doing research, though, for the next book. But I guess I am, I, I'm, I'm more happy saying in public that I'm a writer. In the past, um, I would never have told anyone. I was very even ashamed that I was doing it. And I had a really funny incident, actually. I went to, there's a part of my book that's set in the, um, in Augusta in Western Australia at the Lewin Lighthouse. In fact, the lighthouse on the cover is the Lewin Lighthouse. 
And um, I went down there multiple times to do some research. And at one point, someone at the lighthouse asked me, why do you keep asking all these questions? These such such specific questions. And I, I got really shy and I said, oh, I'm writing a book. And they're like, oh, what are you writing about? And I said, oh, it's just a fiction. It's just a little story. And they laughed at me. Hmm. And they said, oh, you think you're the next, you know, and they named a few authors and they pointed at some books in their bookshop that had, were about lighthouses. And they laughed at me and I was just like, I was so embarrassed. And I was like, yeah, they're right. Like, who do I think I am writing a silly, what, who do I think I am writing a book? So yeah. I, I hope I hope, I hope, hope they end up reading it. Hopefully they like it too. Hopefully they <laughs> you need like to it. go back and you need to go into the bookstore and you need to say, oh, would you like me to sign some copies of that book? <laughs> just be like, hello. Yeah. Um, but, but no, I do, that, be that, all that being said, I do hope that every place I've written about, you know, whether it be the lighthouse or, you know, Guildford, I, I hope that the people in those places like how I've, written about them because I've tried to write with fondness in everything I've written about yeah Yeah. you're a beautiful writer well congratulations Rebecca um the book is called uh, the history of mischief um it's out now and uh you know I think it's just the beginning for you we will see let's hope the next book doesn't take 12 years to write (laughs) no it won't thank you for your time thank you so much If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.